You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. Uh, today, I've got uh, two amazing guests on the program. Kathleen Merrigan, who is an expert organic uh, expert in the area of organic agriculture, uh, celebrated by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world back in 2010. So I'm assuming she's only gained an influence since that point in time. Uh, she currently serves at the Kelly and Brian Sweetie uh, Professor at the School of Sustainability and is the executive director of that center uh, at Arizona State University. Um, So uh, uh, Kathleen was the deputy secretary and COO of the United States Department of Agriculture, where she led efforts to support local food systems. She's known for authoring the law that established the national standards for organic food and the federal definition of sustainable agriculture. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Kathleen. Hey, it's great to be here, Matt, and talk to your listeners. Have fun. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the efforts, uh, your efforts at the Sweetie Center and uh, what what, uh, you're currently working on there. (laughs) Well, first, I'm educating a lot of next-gen leaders uh, because I'm getting old, tired, and cranky, and I'm waiting for the next gen to come uh, and carry on and do better than what my generation has done. And there's nothing um, that points to that more clearly than the challenges that we face with climate change. So I, I do a lot of teaching. Our research center has five goals. Uh, we are very interested in harnessing the power of deliciousness. People will change diets because it's better for them personally, better for the planet. Some people, that is. A lot of people need to be motivated by deliciousness. So we work with chefs on agenda to um, drive home taste of food. We're really interested in what's going on in ag tech now, in progressive industry efforts to change the food system in positive ways and helping support that. We're engaged in an effort called True Cost Accounting, trying to put actual dollar amounts to the externalities in food production, both positive and negative, so people really understand what food costs to produce, and more importantly, decision makers, both in public and private sector, understand that and hopefully change their practices or decisions. And finally, especially because I'm now living in Arizona where 60% of our producers are Native American, we're very interested in what we can learn from indigenous foodways, how that can help create a future path for us, um, learning from the wisdom of what's been done long ago. Well, that is a lot that you're working on and uh, thank you for all the great work you've done thus far. Uh, And it, it seems like we're, there are a lot of great things that uh, I see happening out there, having interviewed lots of uh, different people in the environmental sphere. I guess the question is how fast we're adapting uh, in order to to get to where we need to be. And, and kind of what's your comment as to how fast we're adapting and uh, where you see us uh, headed in the future? Well, clearly we're not moving fast enough. Uh, We have very important reports that come out on our progress and climate. We're not coming close to the timelines that the international governance system has set for us through the Conference of Parties, otherwise known as the COP, the next one 
happening very soon in November in Egypt. Uh, we are not close to achieving the sustainable development goals that were set by um, countries across the globe to achieve by 2030. So um, we need to light a fire under us and really move much, much faster. We, um, we don't have a choice, really. Well, uh, I definitely read that, and and it uh, it is obviously the the major problem that we have is that in the past we've always been able to adapt slowly to changes that were in front of us and uh, had time to make changes, uh, and now we really have such a short window to expend the amount of carbon that uh, will result in irreversible climate change uh, the window is narrowing so fast and uh, the controls don't seem to be in place to to stop it i guess one article that i just read said the california wildfires in 2020 emitted more carbon than we had cut in california for 15 years uh, with all the good efforts that we had made to cut carbon emissions just those fires uh, kind of wiped it out um, so what do you see that can be done in agriculture to change the trajectory of where we're headed? Yeah, um, and that I will just say the world is on fire. What's happening in California is being uh, is happening across the globe. And certainly we're having our own wild, wildfire problems here in Arizona. Uh, and and in my students, they want to accelerate change because they're just really angry at us older people for not doing our jobs to do better. I just point that out. They feel very much at threat. So what can we do in agriculture? Well, I'm a big proponent of organic agriculture. Organic's been around a long time. Congress passed a law that I wrote in 1990 to set up national standards for organic foods. The program's been in place now for a little over 20 years. It's been um, the bright spot in terms of uh, growth in agriculture year on, growth year after year, number of farmers, number of acres, percent of food, but it's still small. Only 6% of the food that Americans purchase is organic, and I think we can do better. And the thesis around organic and climate is very clear. Organic is a climate smart practice and the government should be investing more in it to make it the dominant practice in American agriculture, not just uh, a small portion of what we do. Yeah, I see that one of the problems with organic uh, agriculture is the cost and that um, certainly uh, some of us can afford it. And I certainly buy organic all the time. But I think that it prices a lot of lower income consumers out of the market. And shouldn't the government be supporting uh, organic agriculture for people who are lower down on the income scale so that they can have healthy food? It also redounds to our health uh, benefits and our health system. If we're eating healthier food, then there should be lower costs in, the, in our health uh, care, right? Yeah, bingo, I say, because that's the whole um, logic behind this true cost accounting uh, effort that's going on globally, really, among scholars saying, if we don't really price out what the cost of bad food is to help, what the cost of bad production methods are to farm workers, to our water, to our air, and we, we will keep 
on with the same sort of uh, practices that we've been doing for a long time. So really trying to cost those things out. I think the health case is very, very persuasive. That organic is very important. And the government could be doing more. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, for example, uh, procures a lot of food to feed to students in school lunch programs, to feed um, uh, various nutrition assistance programs that we have. I used to purchase a lot of food when I was in the Clinton and the Obama administrations. Why can't some of that food that we purchase be organic and go to school children, many of whom depend on that school lunch and that school breakfast as their only meals of the day? Well, I, I am absolutely behind that, and and the government can be kind of that actor that that jumpstarts the industry as they've done in other uh, environmental industries, being the first purchaser, say, of electric vehicles or things of that nature. Uh, one of the things related to the ag issue is I had somebody on the program a few months ago, and he was describing how the kelp forest along the California coast was decimated because agriculture used so many chemicals the runoff from the chemicals went to the ocean and decimated the kelp forest that used to be dense uh, all the way up and down the california coast and all the way to oregon and, and washington and nearly has wiped it out um another effect uh just read about was in health all these artificial uh ingredients that we have in american food uh is is partially causing this wave of diabetes because people eat more of this junky food when it's uh, rather than if they had healthy food, there are chemical reactions that occur that say, hey, you're full, stop eating. And they don't happen as much with the artificial food. So uh, how can we do better on those fronts? Well, look, I don't really have to say much more, Matt. You're doing my job for me. You're selling organic in a really great way. Yes, there are all those consequences. I'm originally from the East Coast. I spent a lot of years in Washington, D.C., and we've seen the, the runoff um, from agriculture into the Chesapeake Bay, uh, and it's been devastating. And there are a lot of states that uh, have the bay in, in, their, in their neighborhood. So this is something that we're feeling across the countryside. And the impacts of synthetic pesticides as it relates to climate, they haven't really been quantified and fully evaluated. We know organic is the best bet when it comes to fertilizers, synthetic fertilizers, because we're not worried so much about nitrous oxide, which is a very lethal greenhouse gas. But, but when you add pesticides in, really, the case is clear. Well, we definitely uh, see that happening, and I, I wish that the government would wake up and, and people would wake up, too, and to see the benefits of eating organic. But I do think that it requires kind of a governmental intervention, just as we've had to clean up the air here in Southern California and across the country. There had to be laws in place saying, hey, well, you can't use uh, you, uh, lead in gasoline, for instance, and then it changes. No one producer is going to do that by themselves. We have to kind of enforce it that uh, certain percentages maybe of food that is sold is organic so that it ratchets up the percentage of uh, food that everybody's eating that is healthier because it has so many good societal benefits and uh, 
do some true cost accounting on on what it really is costing us to eat junky food. Well, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and uh, we'll be right back in just one minute to talk to our second guest, Mauro Gillen, uh, Gian, uh, who is has a, an amazing background, teaches at the Wharton School, and uh, we'll be right back in just one second. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I have got uh, a second guest on the program, Mauro Gillen. Uh, Gian, I apologize the mispronunciation. My Spanish teacher always uh, was on me uh, for terrible pronunciation, and and still to this day, I'm, I'm still improving. Anyway, you teach at the Wharton School. Uh, you've received a Guggenheim Fellowship, Fulbright, uh, op-eds, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, lots of TV appearances, um, CNBC, Mad Money. So, hey, if you've been on Mad Money, I'm now I'm really honored to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us, Mauro. Oh, thank you, Matt, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, tell us, your background is a sociologist, political economy, management, uh, um, and in a book that you've written, uh, how today's biggest trends will collide and reshape the future of everything. Uh, tell us a little bit about your book and and um, what uh, what trends are coming that are going to change everything. Oh, thank you. the uh, The book came out a couple of years ago, um, and it's about the year twenty thirty. What the look, what the world will look like in the year twenty thirty. And I essentially, you know, analyze demographic trends, economic trends, and technology trends, uh, and their impact on, uh, you know, uh, how exactly, uh, you know, the world is is going to um, unfold uh, by then. Uh, I, I do dedicate one entire chapter to the issue of climate change, uh, which of course is a topic uh, today. Uh, and um, I, I essentially, uh, you know, invite uh, people in the book to think about how different kinds of trends come together. And I invite them to think laterally about them so that they can uh, understand the implications. So uh, what's your take as to how how we're doing? Are we on trend to uh, tackle climate change or are we uh, getting a failing grade? If if uh, if we were taking your class at the Wharton School, uh, would we get a D or an F or would we get a C? Well, I think, um, let me just um, hedge here a little bit. I think we will probably get a B. Um, so there are a number of um, very long-term trends that I think will help us tackle the problem of climate change, although they are so long-term that maybe uh, it will be too late, right? I think prominent among these is um, the decline in fertility in the number of babies in the world. Um, so... Um, I think most uh, experts on demographics will um, predict that more or less in 30 or 40 years from now, we will reach a maximum population, human population in the world. And that's going to make it possible for us to um, essentially not put as much pressure on natural resources. Now, the problem, as you know, is that uh, 30 or 40 years from now may be a little bit too late unless we take action now about the climate, about climate change, about the environment, about also biodiversity, which is another big issue, as you know. Uh, these days. Um, so um, I'm optimistic in terms of the longer term trends, but pessimistic in terms of whether we're going to be able to make it from here to there before causing irreversible damage 
uh, especially in terms of uh, of uh, climate change. Um, but but more importantly, uh, the other thing that I want to mention is I think we're putting perhaps too much faith in technology, in um, you know uh, a breakthrough that might uh, liberate us from fossil fuels and so on and so forth. I think um, you know most of um, the difference that we can make over the next uh, 20 years or so will come from uh, changing our behavior as consumers. We're very wasteful. Uh, and also, as Kathleen was uh, emphasizing, changing the way in which we make uh, products, right? So in agriculture, it would be to incorporate or to um, uh, you know, make sure that organic agriculture wins. Uh, but in the clothing industry would be, uh, well, to use uh, fewer artificial fibers and more natural fibers. Um, so you can find in many kinds of industries and parts of the economy, um, the analogy of uh, what Kathleen was mentioning for agriculture. Uh, so I think we need to change the way we produce. We need to also change the way we consume, make both of them more wasteful and less wasteful and more uh, conducive to um, an environment that is self-sustaining. Well, I, I definitely think that there is a place for consumers to change behaviors. And I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, you see some trends that it is occurring, but it seems like a bit of a trickle in comparison to the overall, like the organic being 6%. I would imagine uh, kind of sustainably produced clothing might even a be a lower percentage than six percent. Uh, well, well, it depends on how you look at it, right? So, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and Kathleen can correct me if I'm not recalling uh, accurately, um, Americans waste about thirty percent of the food that reaches their table. Okay, or we forget that we have it in the in the in the kitchen closet. Um, and um, if we were able to uh, reduce our waste, um, food waste by just a, by, by a third, right? Um, uh, that will make a big difference because food and beverages, the production of food and beverages, the, the distribution, the transportation associated with them, um, they account for 30% of total emissions in the world. Um, and so 30% of 30% would be 9%. Uh, and that is only one industry. If we could knock um, a third of that, three percent, three percentage points from from our total emissions in the world, um, year after year, that would make a difference. Uh, and then on top of that, we would have uh, you know transportation, we would have the clothing industry, we would have uh, home en home energy efficiency, we would have so many other areas um, in which, if we could um, you know reduce uh, carbon emissions by you know two or three percentage points. Um, all of them together, uh, that would amount to, you know, maybe 20, 30 percent uh, uh, cuts. And it would also be good from the point of view of uh, essentially, I think, uh, for all of us to feel better about how we behave as consumers, right? Being less wasteful. And, uh, and by the way, you, um, it's not just consumers, you. it's also companies that would need to change their ways. For example, not selling us food in, in big containers so that we waste uh, half of it. Right. Uh, so if you were kind of the uh, czar of this area, what would you do to change to help change consumer behavior more quickly? It's it's moving, but it's moving rather modestly. Uh, what can you what can we do to supercharge the change in, in consumer behavior? 
So there's a number of things, and I believe that we should do all of them because the problem is is, is so uh, so urgent. Uh, so we can ask companies, uh, for example, to change their containers uh, and uh, and the sizes of the containers, the materials in the containers. That would go a long way. We can do that through regulation. We can also introduce incentives, uh, or we can introduce nudges uh, to try to make um, uh, consumers more keenly aware of uh, how much they, they they waste, they just throw into the trash. And then uh, the other thing uh, that we can do is be creative and uh, um, look for ways in which we can share uh, more of that, for example, food that we're about to toss. Uh, there are some apps now that you can get on your phone um, and uh, they will enable you to share the food that you're not using, that you're about to throw away, right? Um, and uh, uh, or, or um, let's say you, you purchased a, a big bag of beans, uh, uh, but you, you, you're about to only use half of it or whatever. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of creative solutions, a lot of incentives, a lot of nudges and, and some regulation that we can put in place. Uh, to try to um, uh, rein in this problem of waste that we have. And again, it's not just in food and beverages. It's it's really across the board. Right. I mean, every product that we buy has has a cost to it. And and I think that most of us are pretty unconscious to the cost that, that uh, uh, occurs when we buy or do anything. I was surprised recently when I read that an iPhone takes as much energy to produce as a refrigerator. And you think, holy mackerel, I, I, you know, that's a lot of energy. Uh, and we we swap out our phones all the time. And we think mm -hmm. that's uh, maybe if you've gone through five phones, it's like five refrigerators. You know, it's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I, don't, I, um, I wonder how we can really rein in this food waste. I know France has done some things to uh, help uh, reduce food waste. And, and we've done a few things in California. And. And uh, I've worked with a, an organization here called Food Finders that redistributes food, but uh, they're kind of doing it on a micro scale. We need to we need to really ramp this up. How can we do that? Well, we need, I think, uh, first of all, to engage in education to educate the public, and I think your show can go a long way uh, in that respect. Uh, I think we need to create a collective consciousness that uh, we need to change our ways as as consumers. That happiness. Um, uh, you know, doesn't follow from consuming more. And, and that uh, if we really want to get serious about the environment, and it's not just carbon emissions, it's also biodiversity, it's also uh, the, the quality of the air and so on and so forth, uh, that we need to, um, you know, um, be just uh, more, more intelligent, smarter about consumption. And let me just offer you another example, the clothing industry, which is um, about 8% of uh, carbon emissions. The average American purchases 76 pieces of clothing every year. 76 pieces, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, you tell me whether uh, we wear those, uh, you know, uh, all of those. Uh, we probably buy some and uh, we wear them once and then we forget that we have them in our closet. That's, uh, that's shocking. 76 pieces of clothes a year. The wow. average American, yeah. <laughs> That includes everything, okay? Socks and uh, underwear and shirts and t-shirts and pants and jackets and coats. Well, it's it's incredible, it, and uh, and it adds up so fast. But uh, you're listening to a climate change. Uh, this is Matt Mattern, your host, and I, I will be right back uh, to talk to Maro Guillen and uh, Kathleen Merrigan. Stay tuned. 
You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got uh, Kathleen Merrigan as well as Mara Guillen on the show. And um, we're talking about waste. And one of the things that I've been thinking about as uh, an undergraduate in econ- economics uh, was that GNP is a figure that kind of drives our economy and every economy in the world. And we do not value uh, saving things and in terms of not buying the extra piece of clothing that you were talking about, Mara, or, uh, or you know, the extra food that we end up throwing in the trash. Uh, how can we cook something into our tax system or some incentives. So there's incentives to not produce that extra thing uh, or buy that extra thing so that uh, we actually can supercharge the incentives to live more simply, which would help change uh, or or help improve our uh, environment. I'll go to uh, you first, Mauro, since you kind of raised this topic. Uh, well, uh, you know, in some cases it's easy. You remember when aluminum cans were first used uh, for soda drinks uh, 40 years ago or so. Um, you know, they were showing up everywhere and, uh, you know, in highways, in the streets and all of that. And the solution back then was to offer a five cent refund. Uh, and, and soon thereafter, of course, people were collecting them and uh, in big bags and uh, taking them to the... Uh, to the place where you could get paid uh, five cents uh, for each of them. Um, so that would be a little bit harder with uh, food waste, uh, but I think we should begin with what companies do, right? Um, and uh, uh, how they persuade us, for example, to buy two for the price of one uh, or to buy a bigger container because it is cheaper, proportionally speaking, to a smaller container. Um, and, and then, as I said, also, uh, perhaps we could tax people more for the amount of trash that they produce, organic trash, right? Uh, so that's another way in which we could, uh, you know, so if you, if you, uh, if your household has four people, um, but you're, you know, throwing out in the garbage every week, um, you know, too many bags of uh, organic, then, you know, you, you we're going to charge you a higher tax, right? Or whatever on, on your real estate. Um, so there are ways in which we could address this. Um, uh, and as I said earlier, also education, I think would go a long way. Kathleen, uh, same question to you. What do you think? Well, I think that this is a true problem. FAO and the World Bank, um, well, FAO really, the Food Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, has said uh, if food waste were a country, it'd be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases behind China and the U.S. So this is a really big problem. Come visit me in my home sometime. My husband and I bicker over date labeling on food. Is it still good to eat? Is it still good? You know, should we should we throw it out? Should we keep it? There's no sensible approach to date labeling in food. And there's uh, Congress has been trying to pass legislation on this issue led by Shelley Pingree from Maine. I hope they do it because it would solve a lot of battles in my own household. There are things <laughs> we can do. Right. I, I had uh, Senator Ben Allen, state senator here in California, on the program, and they're working on uh, the dating uh, issue, uh, food 
you know, expiration dates of food because it isn't clear when it's like a sell by date. Does that mean that that means you can't eat it after that date or you just can't sell it? Uh, and right. so, you know, people who are, uh, you know, maybe a little more concerned or safe uh, would not eat it. But some of us who are a little more bold might uh, might dig into it thinking, hey, I don't want to waste that food. But we need clearer uh, guidance from the manufacturers as to when you can really eat this food. Because, yeah, so, many of it, so much of it goes in the trash because it's uh, a date that um, is maybe not the date that it's not edible by what can we do on that front i mean how to how to well how to solve that one? Let, let me offer if i may another idea here which is um, also connected to uh, what i think would be amazing which is to to have a greater percentage of our food um being produced organically i'm, I'm a big uh, fan of uh, organic foods which is uh, we should introduce whatever incentives we can introduce uh so that uh there, there is more proximity um shopping of uh, foods um so that there's more stores smaller stores um that uh, uh you know um, essentially around the country uh, so that people perhaps only have to walk for five or ten minutes max to go to a grocery store and then they 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 would um uh, you know buy uh, uh more frequently but uh, smaller amounts uh, they would probably buy fresher foods. Um, and, uh, and by the way, I think uh, it, they would be in a better position to calculate then how much they need to buy, right? As opposed to just uh, buying for the entire week or for two weeks. And it would have another, I think, uh, really um, big benefit, which is in terms of our health, right? Because the diet would probably improve. Um, so I think that's that's another, you know, if we, if we created incentives for the distribution system of food to become less... Um, uh, reliant on uh, larger stores, right, and uh, and have uh, more proximity stores. I think uh, smaller stores would be wonderful. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant idea, and uh, we certainly have the money to do it. When you consider the cost of the illness that is generated by eating badly, uh, the tidal wave or tsunami of diabetes that has hit the United States. I've heard the cost calculated $330 billion a year and rising. And we're about to get hit with a even bigger wave of people that are pre-diabetic that are going to be diabetic in the next five years if they don't change their ways, which means eating healthier. Uh, can the cost uh, be any clearer to us you know, we think that we're solving it cheaply by fast food, but the reality is that fast food is very, very expensive, isn't it? Oh Definitely. God, yeah. Kathleen, what do you, what do you, what do you think about fast food? Um, it's fast. <laughs> uh, no, look, I, yeah, I mean, generally, uh, we want to eat less um, processed food. That's 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 a no brainer, right? But you asked Mara what he would do if he was czar. I want to tell you what I would do if I were czarina, okay? Because <laughs> maybe someday that will happen. One never knows. So at the Sweetie Center, we put out a report that people can find on our website last year that was the critical to-do list for organic agriculture, 46 recommendations for the president. 46, not because I couldn't think of 146, 46 because Joe Biden's the 46th president of the United States. We have a lot of fun with numbers in the report, 
But as of today, I can tell you that USDA has acted on about 13 of them in some way. That's 33 recommendations that would really help organic agriculture that have not even had a chance. Next week on October 25th, with um, Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, Californians for Pesticide Reform, and the Sweetie Center, we're putting out a big report that's titled Grow Organic, the Climate, Health, and Economic Case for Expanding Organic Agriculture. People can find that on NRDC's website. And it's really going to make the case why organic makes sense for uh, so many reasons, for so many different goals that we have as a globe, um, and for so many different pockets of people who need help. Well, that's uh, that's great. Uh, I hope that uh, the public policymakers are are paying more attention to this and uh, getting the word out, because quite frankly, I just don't see much ink being uh, written uh, or spilled about this topic. I mean, it doesn't seem like it hits the popular press uh, at all. Uh, Mara, what, why do you think that is? What do I think? Uh, what hits the popular press or doesn't? Uh, the organic issue and, and the cost of uh, not eating organic, how, how come uh, people don't seem to understand uh, or policymakers don't seem to understand what the cost is of eating uh, poorly? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, old habits die hard. And um, especially in the United States, I think uh, we have gotten used to buy very cheap food. Uh, and some of these food can be produced very cheaply using preservatives and all of these things and uh, and uh, chemicals uh, when the, when you're growing uh, the produce and so on and so forth. Um, and also they have a, a longer shelf life, shelf life, and uh, you know all of these kinds of things, right? Um, but the the benefits of organic, if only from the absence of preservatives, right, in the food. Uh, are just, uh, you know, the health benefits are just so immense, but it also it tastes better, right? I think what we right. have lost is this sense of uh, food is supposed to taste natural, to taste fresh, to taste better. And, uh, you know, for me, um, to when I compare a, um, a strawberry jam made organically and strawberry jam with lots of preservatives and everything, uh, it's just night and day, right? Uh, so I think we, again, I'm, I'm going back to education, maybe because I'm an educator, uh, but we need to educate people also about the, 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 how, how great, um, good tasting food can be, right? I think we need to educate people in that respect. And by the way, uh, this hasn't come up yet, but I think it's absolutely essential. School cafeterias, we have to change that, right? The type of food that is served at schools. Well, I give you a big amen on that one. Uh, how how much more? What could be more important than feeding our children good food and giving them a good start to their life? I mean, yeah. what uh, in terms of investment return in health and uh, in so many different ways? Uh, this is a no-brainer. But uh, you're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got Kathleen Merrigan and Mauro Guillen. Uh, we'll be right back in just one minute. Listen to a climate change. This is Matt Matter, your host. Uh, again, I have Kathleen Merrigan, uh, agriculture organic agriculture expert, um, as well as Maro 
uh, Guillen, uh, who is at the Wharton School. And uh, Kathleen, a question to you. Uh, tell us more about the sustainable food systems and why they're important for the environment. Well, um, if they're unsustainable, we're on the same trajectory we're on now. And, um, you know, Mara, I'm going to say there's great inflation at the Wharton School because I don't think I'm willing to give a B as to where we're at now. I would, <laughs> I'm not even sure I could give a gentleman C. I think we're, um, we really have to do so much better. Sustainable food systems is a relatively new area of study where we really try to look at the interconnectedness of all the different aspects of our food system, a panoramic understanding, if you will. And that's very important. Doesn't mean that um, you work on everything. You may work on one particular area, but you understand it in its fuller context. So that's a new approach. We just had the United Nations hold the first ever food systems summit last year. And I think it's a really good development. So, uh... Mauro, uh, just asking you, what can business do to improve this situation, particularly large businesses? Well, we, we, we've seen that whenever large businesses um, become leaders uh, for good, uh, then we see change happening much faster. For me, the best example is when Walmart decided to stop carrying uh, the uh, older bulbs in favor of LED uh, bulbs, electric bulbs, which are more energy efficient. Up until that happened, adoption of LED bulbs in the United States uh, was proceeding very, very slowly. Uh, so now when it comes to climate change, when it comes to uh, food, when it comes to all of these issues that have an impact on our health, on our lifestyle, on the environment, uh, I think we need to ask corporations to uh, take the lead um, because they can, you know, uh, especially the larger ones, they can they can make a big difference. Uh, and uh, we should be putting a lot of pressure on them uh, so that they do the right thing and help us move the economy uh, in the direction of, uh, of it being more sustainable and being greener. Well, I, I wasn't a huge supporter of Walmart uh, or haven't been, but I will say that they did support also uh, uh, buying hydrogen powered forklifts in their business and it kind of uh, helped uh really the hydrogen business really developed to have a big supplier say, hey, we're going to buy a lot of these. And uh, it gets a nascent, environmentally friendly business kind of a, a push in the right direction. Um, so yes, our business community can make a big difference on that front. And and we should be expecting more of them. I, I read a, a book about... Uh, the end of loyalty and, and talked about how the businesses back in the forties and fifties had a more communal spirit of uh, they cared about their communities. And somehow that got disconnected when Milton Friedman said, Hey, shareholder, the, the corporate uh, chieftains should only care about shareholder value. Uh, and uh, I guess um, as a, given that corporations are citizens, don't uh, corporations have some duties as citizens? Uh, Kathleen, I'll let you answer that one. Well, I, um, I'd i like to believe that it'll all happen out of goodwill, but I'm sort of a regulation loving kind of gal. The Securities and Exchange Commission has a proposed rule out that would uh, really um, put some teeth into climate uh claims 
that corporations are making to prevent greenwashing. So uh, everyone wants to say they're doing right by climate, by by the environment, by um, society in terms of racial and social equity goals. But how do we really know? How do we really measure? How do we really have accountability? So I think this proposed rule by the SEC is is a really a bold step by the government, and I hope to see it finalized. Well, that would be great. Uh... I, I do think that laws are necessary to enforce as a lawyer. I, I certainly uh, am a firm believer in regulation and that a regulated market is what has allowed the U.S. and other nations like it to uh, achieve the successes that it has. So uh, in order to have a, an effective stock market, you have to have a tremendous amount of regulation. You can't just have an unregulated market. So um what can we do, Mauro, to uh, change regulations to improve uh, businesses' conduct and, and so that they're more environmentally friendly? Well, I mean, I think in a democracy, we need to start by electing um, people who, candidates who believe that um, regulation can help us um, accomplish certain socially desirable goals. Um, there are, as you know, politicians out there who run for office uh, on a platform of essentially eliminating every conceivable regulation, right? Because they believe that stands in 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 the way of uh, creating jobs and, and so on and so forth. So I think that's the first step that we have to take. The second, I think, is to, um, you know, essentially uh, have good research about what works and what doesn't work and the extent to which the things that do work actually are changing uh, the planet uh, for the better. Um, so I, I think we need those two things. I mean, it, there is a political aspect to it, and there's also a, I would call it, um, knowledge aspect to it, meaning that we, we need to, um, uh, you know, uh, produce the evidence uh, that regulation can be helpful. I think that's something that's really missing, Mara, and, and uh, put your finger on it, which is that I don't see a whole lot of uh, stuff in the popular press about the advantages of these regulations and the cost, say, the advantages of uh, the Clean Air Act and that it has saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives, because it, it just isn't written about very much. It isn't written about what a food safety law could do or a food waste law could do. So people aren't, as voters, maybe as educated as to the value of the regulations. Kathleen, uh, are we doing a good enough job educating voters as and, and doing studies as academics to uh, show what those costs are? No, we're not. We need to do better. But I will also say in defense of the regulation haters out there, not all government regulations have been done well. Uh, sometimes the uh, the kind of work that you have to do to comply, the paperwork is overly onerous. Uh, some of it's not particularly rational. I was overseeing the USDA regulatory processes when I was deputy secretary. So I'm actually in some ways pointing the finger right back at myself. I think government can do better in terms of having very easily understood logical regulations. I think that would go a long way in helping the public embrace them. 
And I will also say there's some industries that embrace regulations as well. The organic industry came to Congress in the late 1980s and asked the government to regulate the industry. They saw that having the government behind the organic label would provide consumer confidence in purchasing organic product and would help in the enforcement of standards. And I think it was um, proven to be a very wise move. Well, so maybe we could use some regulatory reform, which is just to say, hey, we've written a lot of regulations over the last 50 years. What are the ones that are working the best and, and which are the ones that are are not really working so that we can uh, change our course? Mauro, what, uh, how would you see we could take a course correction here? Well, in terms of, um, if I understood the question correctly, in terms of regulations, um, actually, you know, producing the results that we want them to to produce, I think we also need to understand, you know, oftentimes the policy making process and implementing new policies and all of that is a trial and error process, right? I mean, you don't always get it right right away. Um, so I think we have to also have a certain degree of tolerance in terms of understanding that okay, maybe we won't get it right uh, exactly right the first time around, but we're going to, you know, um, uh, incrementally improve the fit. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for incrementalism, and, and but doing it somewhat aggressively in this situation, because we can't be uh, as passive maybe as we might want to be and be as careful, we're going to make some mistakes along the way. Uh, I think there's beauty in looking at the models. Hey, what has California done right with the environment? What has it made a mistake on? And how can we uh, improve nationally. Uh, Kathleen, I'm going to give you uh, the last uh, shot at this one before we close out the show. What can we do? Well, we can vote with our fork, make smart decisions in terms of what we do as consumers. We can vote at the polls on election day and be very active citizens in stating what we want government to do. And again, 6% organic food, I think we should have much more than that. And it's going to take a government wind in the sails to make it happen. Let's make it 60% or maybe a hundred percent. How about that? You know, <laughs> why shouldn't we all eat healthy food for every single meal? I mean, uh, this would help, uh, uh, you know, it's a Hippocrates, uh, let our medicine be our food and let our food be our medicine. That's uh, the Hippocratic oath practically. So let's get back to basics. I really appreciate uh, both of being on the show, Kathleen Merrigan, as well as uh, Mauro Guillen. Thank you both. It was uh, really great talking to you and I hope to uh, have you on the program in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, everybody tune back in next week. Uh, Until then, have a great week, everyone. As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-FOR-YOU. That's 844-MLG-FOR-YOU or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968. 